You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Today we are sitting down with somebody that has been recommended to us several times. You listened to his lovely wife in our second episode. He is a 25-year veteran in the guitar community as a professional luthier. He is a... He is so smart about the era that he collects and the tinkering that he does. I don't, it's like, I would say, he's the Stephen Hawking of guitars, minus Ouch. the uh, computer part. Today on the show, on the Mothball Prophecies, we have Eric Daw sitting down with us. Thank you. I just, from the moment I met you, I was astounded at your level of understanding for lots of things, not just... Well, thank you. And I'm, we're so excited to have you on to talk about all of your cool stuff and okay. the things you do for a living, <laughs> just in general, to be mostly Snoopy. Well, I'm excited to be on the show because it's it has become one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, my God. I love it. Oh, thanks. It's great. I was telling my wife, and, you know, she was on the show, and uh, for the listeners that don't know, you live just down the street from us. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, <clears throat> right. it's kind of serendipitous, really. But uh, even if I did not know you, I would listen to the show because it ha- I've just fallen in love with it. I think it's great. Ah, thanks. We wow, that is that. like the highest of praise. I know. Well, Thank you so much. And we appreciate that. You know, we really, we wanted to create something that everybody could listen to and enjoy. Yeah. And not have like, you know, we wanted it to be for people that have a level of understanding of collecting that's a little more advanced to the people that are like, I don't even know what the hell I have. Yeah. So thanks. And yeah. I love, you have a great show too that follows those same guidelines. I love your show. So they run, Melissa and Eric do the Fret Files podcast. It's a, it's a podcast about guitar nerd uh, oddity. Like it's about, it's just about guitar tech. So it's very, very niche. It's pretty niche, but I wouldn't say that's a bad thing. Like I can listen to it and understand enough of what's going on mm-hmm. to be like, oh, okay, I could let me just build a guitar. Because you have you've mostly just run off of like listener submitted questions. Mostly, I do some interviews, but not many. And uh, it's it's uh, we try to inject as much humor and just fun as we can because it's a pretty dry topic. <laughs> Yeah, you and your wife are great together. I well, just thanks. love listening. I don't know anything about guitars, but I like listening to you guys banter between each other. Thanks. Well, and I like on your show, because you guys, you do the listener-submitted uh, question, so it's different every time you upload, but yeah. there are so many things that I, um, obviously I don't know anything about guitars, but like the idiosyncrasies of guitars and the work that you do is incredible. And what... Because we've talked a little bit about this, but what led you to this world, like, of building custom guitars and fixing guitars? Did you have guitars as a kid? I did, you know, and it. I'd like to say that it was all some part of a master plan to make my life go just exactly how I wanted it. But really, um, a lot of it has been luck. I just I became obsessed with guitars as a kid, 
after seeing the movie The Buddy Holly Story. Have you ever seen this? I've never mm-hmm. seen it, but I am very familiar with Buddy Holly. With Gary Busey. <laughs> it's a great movie, The classic actually. actor. It's a great movie. Classically trained. Uh, he's, it's probably, you know, it, that's definitely the highlight of his career, in my opinion. Yeah. Gary Busey playing Buddy Holly. But um, Oh, he plays Buddy Holly? Yeah. Holy shit. Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay, I got to look into it. it. Really? See, we think we're looking at Gary Busey through 2020 mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not 2020 vision. I'm talking about the year <laughs> 2020. Uh, in the 70s, when this was recorded, he hadn't gone nuts. Right. He, he's crazy. Sure. I, my reference of Gary Busey is from like the VH1 show. Yeah, he's insane. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. All I right. don't know what happened to I think he was in a motorcycle accident. And, oh, might have been. And has brain, literally has brain damage now. Okay. I feel yeah. bad now. Sorry. He's a, he's a great guy. I'm sorry, Gary. And, and a lot of fun. But back then, you know, this was, he was probably in his early 20s and nails it. Like Buddy Holly's widow, uh, watching the movie for the first time said she felt like she was watching Buddy. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. How long after his death did that movie come out? Was it in the 70s? It said? was in the 70s. So, you know, let's see. He died in 59. Oh, wow. Almost 20 years. What a treat for her. Yeah. That's, wow. Anyhow, I saw that movie as a kid and I didn't see it in, uh, when it first came out. I saw it years later on TV in the early 80s when I was probably six. And uh, uh, it just, it was like a a beam of light shone down from the sky. And it, you know, Eric, you must buy a guitar, you know. <laughs> right. And I just became obsessed with guitars and 50s music mm-hmm. and 50s aesthetic mm-hmm. as a kid, you know. And then the second movie, there's two movies that really influenced kind of my <laughs> my my collecting style, I guess. But the other one was uh, Back to the Future. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because um, as a kid in like, I think that came out in 1984, 85. We'll fact check it. I think it was 85. Um, you know, I'm a nine-year-old kid in the 80s the music around me is either like madonna or like the weird hair pop metal yeah uh-huh. uh, it's definitely not aligning with anything from the 50s and that's not what i was into i i really felt like i was just an out of place mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. in the timeline <laughs> of uh you know in my timeline like i like i should like i felt like i should have been born in the 40s or 50s so uh it just became an obsession for me to to collect things 50s and it was almost out of a rebellion against the time that i was growing up in yeah like you know even even then you go to buy a tv and your choices are black or gray plastic sure and i remember seeing the old tv in my grandmother's basement and it's like beautiful cherry uh, wood with, you know, brass handles and you open the doors and the TV's inside and the knobs are these beautiful, like back painted gold wow. knobs. And, you know, just, I just loved the aesthetic and I hated the aesthetic of the time I was growing up in. Mm-hmm. 
I had a very similar experience growing up. Like um, when I was in high school, everything was kind of like pop punk and popular music and Aeropostale and Hollister and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I felt that kind of wayward lost soulness of being like, I don't feel pulled to any of that. Mm hmm. And I remember I was doing, oh, this was in middle school. I was doing my first solo in choir. And my uncle says to me, he goes, you should do something by Etta James. Mm. And I had no idea who she was. Yeah. And this was, you know, infancy of Google. And he pulls up. He goes, I just, he, he just sits next to me and he takes me on this first little journey into the 50s. And he's playing me Etta James. And then he's showing me pinups that were painted on bombers. Yeah. And I was hooked. Yeah. And that is the 50s and the 40s are like my happy place Yeah, with what I collect. And like when I think back to, I guess, true Americana and when everything was still beautiful when you had it in your home, it's that era. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And that it, I always just feel like called to it and pulled to it. I have a book somewhere that um, uses the term populux for that era. Have you ever heard this? No. Populux meaning pop like populism like it like for the people, like sure. for ev accessible to everyone, but lux is in deluxe, right? So <sighs> the deluxe available for everyone. So in the 40s or 50s, you go to buy anything uh at, you know, Woolworths or Montgomery Ward, even a toaster or a lamp. And the thing is just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like there mm -hmm. wasn't a non-beautiful option. Yeah. Yeah. There were several tiers of beautiful design. And yeah. You know, so you could buy the cheapest one, which was still amazing and beautiful. And it was still, you know, we learned that um, in Terry's episode, we were talking about, you know, mid-century modern and how there were tiers of furniture dealers or sure. uh, people that made these these pieces. For people's house, and it was kind of similar to like yeah. Ashley Furniture, Crate and mm -hmm. Barrel, Nordstrom, to that way. And I feel like you know, and we've talked about this, how we've become such a consumer society yeah. of like, okay, I'm just going to use this until it breaks, yep. right? And you let you keep a lot of things in your home that are from the 50s and 60s, and they still work, which is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it, some of it, is out of practicality. Like, for example, I collect old Farberware coffee makers, percolator coffee makers. And I was so excited and, when you offered us coffee today because <laughs> it's delicious. And one of the reasons why is because I was frustrated with modern coffee makers. They always have uh, plastic mm -hmm. or, you know, some part of it that uh, after a while, you know, it might make great tasting coffee for a month. After a while, you cannot wash the burnt plastic flavor out mm -hmm. of your coffee maker, no matter how hard you try. So I stumbled onto these old percolators, and they're beautiful. They work beautifully. They're all stainless steel. There's not a plastic or aluminum part wow. on it, right? <clears throat> so and the, the base, it looks like plastic, but it's Bakelite, and it has a little Bakelite knob on the top too but none of that even contacts the coffee everything that <laughs> everything the coffee touches is it's just stainless you know so so That's it just... never imparts any flavor you could use it as long as the the heat element doesn't burn out i'll use that for a hundred years 
Which is that, you know, and there's a difference between having one, a cup of coffee from a percolator versus a drip style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A percolate. If you've never had a percolated cup of coffee, it's it's next level. It's pretty good. Yeah. It, I think it is. I love it. Like you get more of the richness of the coffee. Yeah. And you have less of a chance of burning yeah. it or over roasting. Yeah. Yeah. But if I went down to the corner store right now and bought a coffee maker, how long would I use that thing mm-hmm. until right. it either crapped out or just became unusable? Well, and I'm thinking about like my husband and I have been married for 10 years together, 11. We've gone through maybe five coffee pots in that time. Yeah. And that's, you know, I do you find like, how do you find this stuff now, especially that's coming into popularity and keep it affordable? Well, part of the reason why I collect the stuff I collect, another part, part of the reason is that I'm cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just cheap. And so I find them at garage sales and thrift stores, and I pay a few dollars, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's not a chore to do that because it feels like a treasure hunt. Yeah. There's always oh, for things. Sure. There's always things I'm out looking for, and it's like a treasure hunt. And when I find something, sometimes it's something I didn't even know I was looking for until I found it, you know. Right. But you find it at a garage sale. It's two dollars, and it just brings me joy. It's exhilarating to feel like it's like you almost won over the dealer. Yeah, when you get a good deal, it feels like you're stealing too. When it's so cheap, you're like, "Oh my god, I feel like I should offer you a little more, but I'm not because it's two dollars." <laughs> and you didn't right. Google it. Yeah, because I keep like a rolling list in the notes on my phone of like stuff I'm looking for depending on the season, like garden stuff or things for the house decorations. And some dishware and coffee cups. I always look for cool coffee cups. And you guys have great coffee cups. Cool. Do you find, because you guys moved back here in 2017, right, from Seattle. I think so, yeah. What is the difference, like, antique and collecting-wise from here to there? You know, um, things were maybe a little more expensive in Seattle. But uh, there were more thrift stores. They were bigger. They were open later. Uh, they were all of them were open on Sunday, you know. <laughs> I mean, so it was it was kind of better um, treasure hunting up in Seattle, uh, but it's still good here. It yeah. really is. It's there's some changes have happened here in our hometown here, Idaho Falls, Idaho, uh, recently that I don't I'm not super crazy about like my favorite thrift store, the Deseret Industries, moved it. It was in the same location since I was a kid. My mom used to take me there and to to shop for school clothes because yeah. we were poor. That's where yeah. we used to shop too, yeah. And uh, and I just loved that location. And now they've moved out way out to what I consider the edge of town. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but And it's lost with that move. It lost the, I like to dig a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this new one is curated. Yeah. So I feel like if, and there's people that like, they're like the hawks, like they stand and wait for those carts to come yeah. out and they pick them yeah, before they like, even. Yeah, like I remember like moving stuff and I'm like, holy shit, look what I found. And yeah. now it's yeah. like everybody sees it and makes a beeline right towards it. Yeah. And some of the stuff doesn't even make it all the way out because it comes off those. And they've changed that a little bit because of the coronavirus. They're only stocking the store once a day. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and for those, the listeners out there that don't know that the area of the country that we live in is um, predominantly um, LDS, 
Church of Latter-day Saints. So the the stores in our area kind of revolve around that schedule. Mm-hmm. And almost everything is closed on Sundays mm-hmm. here. And it's not weird to you until you leave here. So it's similar in like Utah. Yeah. And re- like when we go home to Boise, we're like, oh my God, the stores are open on Sundays. Let's go. After yeah. five like- o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, was that, so you, grow, you grew up here. I did. I grew up in Idaho Falls. I left in, I think it was 2002. And is that when you went to Seattle? I moved to Seattle in 02. Okay. So I lived there for 15 years. Let's walk back a little bit because I know your origin story with guitars and it's fascinating. And I want the listeners to know your, your climb into where you are now and you will not sing your praises at all. But Eric is revered in the guitar community as one of the best vintage Fender or vintage guitar repairmen and builders. And he won't say this about himself. Well, thanks. But he is, and he's blushing No, all you have to say, especially here in the community, is Eric. And they're like, duh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, shit. I know him. (laughs) Yeah. And even, you know, Terry knew who you were. Where did your journey with guitars start? Did it start from that tinkering aspect that you have? It's, it, and the Buddy Holly. It started with Buddy Holly. Yeah. And and it just became an obsession. And I watched that movie at an age where your your reasoning isn't quite fully developed. And people tell you when you're a kid, hey, you know, at least they did to me. When you grow up, you can be anything you want. So think about that. And so I did. And I thought, cool, I'm going to be Buddy Holly. Mm-hmm. And I really, my illogical mind i really thought i could i can be buddy holly (laughs) (laughs) you're pretty close yeah you're You're pretty damn close that's funny but i mean really that's what i thought you know and uh i just wanted a guitar and i just wanted to learn all those songs because i figured someday i would be on stage doing buddy you know yeah and um obviously you know you get older and you realize that uh that was a childish and weird and not realistic way to think, but um, I just became obsessed with guitars, and I be I'm, I've I've always been obsessed with how things work. Mm-hmm. Like when I was a, a kid, I would get a say a radio for Christmas, and um, that's great. I want to listen to it, but one of the first things I want to do is take it apart, open it, and look at what's inside mm-hmm. because to me it's magic. Yeah, how? Does this work? And it's just, it, it's it's still magic to me mm-hmm. to think about, um, I just have this love affair with electronics, guitar amplifiers, radios, not so much televisions, but just um, you you open those things up and there's all these little bits and pieces in there. And as a kid, you look in there and you're like, what kind of sorcery is this? Yeah, how is the how sound does this work? Come from me to this little chord and out this. And I became upset. I wanted to understand how that worked, and I felt the same way about guitars. Um, it didn't make sense to me that an electric guitar, right? So it has a solid body, mm-hmm. so it doesn't resonate really. It doesn't have a hollow body like an acoustic. A solid body guitar, you pluck the string, and somehow. That vibration of the string goes into the pickups and through some knobs and out a chord and to an amplifier, and somehow 
these little electrons flow in there and make a big noise. And I couldn't figure it out. Because, and one of the things that just confounded me was when I opened up my first electric guitar, which was, you know, when I think what, I was six or seven when I got an electric guitar, and that was one of the first things I wanted to do was take off the screws and, and open it up and look what's in there. There was no battery. Oh, right. And I thought, well, how can there not be a battery? Yeah. Because how does this work? How is, how is it sending electricity down the cable without a battery? And when I realized how it worked, it blew my mind. How does it work? Because I sit and pontificate on this. You ready? Yes. The pickup is a magnet. And so when you pluck the string, it vibrates. And the magnet sees that vibration, you know, as an oscillation in its magnetic field. Oh, my gosh. And then around the magnet is a coil of wire. Not just a coil of wire, a coil of wire that's like as thin as hair, thinner, thousands of turns around the magnet. And each time it goes around, right, like it gets stronger. Oh, my God. I know. And then that gets sent to the amp and amplified. It just... If I, describe my <laughs> face gave, right it, now. I know. <laughs> it still gives me goosebumps talking about it, which is the nerdiest thing ever. I am sitting here like eyebrows to my hairline, mouth open. <laughs> it gets like I can picture it, but at the same time, I can't picture it. Like, well, you know, I just like... had all of these like connections in my brain because I've listened to you talk about this. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen you wind pickups on your yeah. the thing you made. Yeah. And my, it was like, um, what's that meme where it's like the chick looking off and there's all the science behind her? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. That's what I just felt <laughs> yeah. like. Well, and I still, I mean, it still seems magic to me. Like, I, I understand how it works, but there's still an element of like wizardry. Uh, yeah. Like sorcery. Well, it's yeah. incredible. But when you, I brought this in from the shop just to show you. I'm One of the things I collect is old capacitors. So like when you, when I opened up a radio as a kid, I'm seeing stuff like this, you know, and it looks like a little, like a it looks like candy. a now and later looks like yeah, it looks like a, looks a starburst, like a starburst mm -hmm. or yeah. some of them look like chiclets. So Eric brought in from his shop this like Rubbermaid tote. Yeah, and that has I don't know maybe a thousand old capacitors <sighs> in here, vintage capacitors, and these are new old stock capacitors that have never been in any electronics but oh wow these are all from like the 40s and 50s 60s well probably not 40s probably 50s and 60s but when i'm restoring an old guitar or if i have i don't i don't really do amplifier repair for customers but i work on my own amps uh -huh. if i need a capacitor i can go to this tub and instead of using some crappy taiwanese modern radio shack capacitor it's just gonna have to be replaced again in a handful of years i can use a capacitor from the right era for the amp. Oh my gosh. We'll take a picture of this and put it on our Instagram because it <laughs> yeah. is just I'm a big sucker for anything like in a bin or yeah, totally. little <laughs> like I could just see the like your arms get goosebumps from it. <laughs> well, I had to I was laughing when I listened to um your podcast with uh Linda Oh Linda Davies talking about electronics uh -huh. and how people just can't repair old electronics and old tubes are impossible to get. And 
I'm looking in my cupboard in the shop and I have like a giant box of tubes and I have a big bin of capacitors. <laughs> like to me, that's not a big deal. Like if I buy a radio, I don't even care if it works. Maybe we'll have to get Eric on board with I your... know. Because I have... bought a beautiful mid-century console. Oh, cool. Yeah. At one of Linda's yeah. sales and we opened it up and it's got the record player and everything yeah. and... Yeah, we'd really like to get that working yeah. again. It's so cool. I can fix some stuff like that. I might not be able to fix that, but I would take a look at it. But like like one of the things I used to collect, and it's sad because when I moved to Seattle, I <laughs> I lived in this house out in Osgood, which is a farming oh, community outside of town. And I just had a house that was just full of what most people would call junk, but to me was treasure. I had... Uh, there was a built-in bookcase um, on the wall, and it was just filled with table radios. So little Bakelite oh. radios, you know, about, I mean, the size of a loaf of bread or smaller. Mm -hmm. And um, I had probably 20, 30 of them. And when I moved, I could not take all this stuff with me. So I, I had several antique dealers out to the house, and they just cleaned me out. They, they were probably so yeah. stoked. Oh, they loved it. I mean you know, 50s kitchen table and chair ah. set. And I mean, I had so much stuff and I just, it was, it broke my heart to get rid of it. So I took everything I that I had in the world and put it in a little van and moved wow. to Seattle. I didn't take much. I got rid of everything. I had a fleet of classic cars oh that, my I, gosh. that I sold to go there. So a lot of my collection's gone, but I've I've collected more, especially, you know, well, do you feel like now you kind of, you, you've owned so much of it that now you can be more particular with what you're bringing yeah. home? Yeah. And kind yeah. of be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to only choose from this styling instead yeah. of sometimes when you first start collecting, like I'm just getting into collecting the Victorian morning jewelry mm -hmm. and that you want to buy every piece that you see. Sure. But then logistically, and I mean, that's not a wise <laughs> right. decision. <Yeah. laughs> right. For, especially for right. me. Yeah. But you, that move to Seattle was pivotal for you. Yeah. In more ways than, I mean, you, you, Melissa, and your family life and all of that started. But you moved there specifically to work in a guitar store? I was chasing a girl, <laughs> if the truth needs to come out. But yeah, that too, I did. I, Both very a, important. Yeah, there was a guitar store that um, I really wanted to work at, and I did get a job there. And I worked there for 15 years. But part of the reason I left is because um, I was just falling apart here mm. in Idaho. I had been through some stuff, and it had I was just I was just completely and totally miserable, and no amount of thrift store treasures were gonna were gonna bring me enough happiness to sure. to heal me. You know, and I had to get out of town. So I sold it all and moved. Did that have the cleansing effect that you were looking for? Like, I guess in hindsight? Not immediately. <laughs> no. No, it really didn't. Not immediately. You know, but when you live in a, when you live in a city like that, a big city, mm -hmm. and, you know, you, I had a, a tiny apartment that was very expensive, and you just don't have room. Yeah. You don't have room for the kind of things that I would want to fill up a place with. You don't have a room. You don't have room for a collection. You don't have a place to put a 1952 Pontiac. 
you know. <laughs> no, not so generally. I, so I sold it all. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I... It's okay. You're good. Oh, and he pulls out a flip phone. I don't know how to turn off the ringer. <laughs> That's okay. Sorry. It's fine. I love we'll, that you just pulled out I, a flip we'll phone. Just have to wait until <laughs> that could not have been any more on brand for you. <laughs> I won't use a smartphone. I never, I've never had one. I hate them. In fact, I wouldn't have a flip phone. But when I started dating Melissa, she said, "No, no, no, no. This is a deal breaker. <laughs> I need to be able to get a hold of you." And you're like, "Oh, you need to get a cell phone." And I mean, I still wouldn't have one to this day. I would just have a landline with an answering machine. A rotary phone that you had to... I like rotary. I have, I, one of the things I used to collect was old rotary phones. Not even surprised. <laughs> Not even surprised. <laughs> I don't really have any now. Of course, Melissa would laugh at that because I think I have three or four. I'm gonna, but, I mean, I had... I, we're going to include her in the fact check portion. Yeah. And I'm going to call her and go, hey, how many... I need a number on this yeah. antique. <laughs> so you, you collect things kind of in multiples. Yeah. Of the same item. Yeah. Do you yeah. collect things in multiples because you want them? One, because if they break, you have a backup. Or two, you don't know if you're going to run across it before the price goes up? Yeah. Um, probably a combination. And, you know, the other thing is that, like I said, I'm cheap, you know. So <laughs> if I find if I find another table radio mm-hmm. for $5, I have to buy it. I'm coming at the same side of the street. And so does Jill. Like, yeah. it is, that's my philosophy too, because I just, I'm like, I can't walk away from this price. Like, I bought, I was buying printer trays from somebody on Facebook, like the old typesetting printer's desk trays. And then when I went to her house, she had them laid out, and I bought three trays to hang on my wall. And then I look over, and there's a five gallon bucket, half full of typeset. Hmm. I don't have a reason to have any of that. And I looked at the lady and I said, oh, how much are you asking for that bucket? And she said, oh, because she was selling it for her grandmother. And she says, well, we want, you know, like $50 for the bucket. And I was already buying the typesetting trays. And I went, well, will you take it? Can I get all this in the bucket for 65 bucks? Mm. And she was like, sure. Yeah. And then I picked it up and it's like 60 pounds. Yeah. What the fuck am I going to do with any of that? I know she sent me the picture of it, and I, I, li- I think I literally said that. What are you going to do with like, all of that? And then Melissa came over, and we both picked through it like giddy schoolgirls, and her hands were covered in gook from digging yeah, through this, and right. mostly spelling like swear words, and then our names. Five year old. <laughs> she came home and told me about it. She was really excited. And then she, I was miffed because she picked out her name, and then she put it back in the bucket. So I said her Marco Polo, and I was like, "Did you not take that home?" She was like, no. And I was like, well, I guess you're going to have to dig through it again and get everybody's names. <laughs> that's funny. Because, yeah, that's one of the, I just can't, I can't walk away from something like that. Yeah. And if I see something in a, like, like you were talking about a, a curated thrift store and there's some of those in town. And I mm-hmm. hate that. When you go to a thrift store and it's, the prices are too high and it looks like the Martha Stewart runs the place. Yeah. I hate that. But you'll see, like, I see all the time in a thrift store like that, a radio that I might want, but they want $90 for it. Right. Now, you might get that on eBay, mm-hmm. but this is a thrift store. We talked about this in um, a recent episode about how thrift stores and um, just anything like that, secondhand shops have become gentrified. The internet ruined everything. Yes. 
I wish I could take the internet, wad it up into a ball, and pitch it toward the horizon. Mm-hmm. I really, it has been a net loss, <laughs> I think. I would agree. I, I think that there's some great positivities that have come from it, like connecting in a community of like-minded collectors and finding out information about stuff. But the downside is, is like those people I was speaking about at DI that pick through stuff, then they take it and sell it and mark it up. Yeah. And now they think they're an expert. And now they think they're, I mean, these, these old ladies that run in our town, mm. I'm sure they're wonderful ladies, mm-hmm. but they drive me bananas. Yes. Because they, I know that they're just back there Googling like, oh, what is this worth? Oh, someone's trying to sell one on eBay for $150. Uh-huh. So we should try the same thing. And they, it's, it's this problem of a little bit of information, but it, not enough. They yeah. don't get the whole picture. They don't look up what they've been selling for no. or what people will pay for them and then subtract from that the fact that this is a thrift store and not an antique. And it was donated. It drives me bananas. Yeah. Well, and I find I get the best deals at that thrift store with something that doesn't have a name on it. You have to know what it is. Yeah. That's how I find at yeah. that. And I, you know, it's taken the fun out of it for me. I don't I stop at that store. Well, and yeah, I very rarely go to any thrift stores here. Yeah. I usually just do the estate sales mm-hmm. more than anything. Estate I, sales are awesome. Yeah. Those are more fun to me than anything. Totally. Because, well, and Sam and I usually go to, to with them together, mm-hmm. and it's the whole, we don't know what's really in there. Sure. We kind, when we first get a glimpse, you kind of get a style, but then we'll find, we always leave there with, like, bags full of stuff. Yeah. And it's, you know, like you said, it's treasure hunting. It's the thrill yeah. of the chase. Yeah. To get what you're after. Yeah. And, well, and you, I mean, your knowledge is particular to mid-century and specifically... With the mid-century, like vintage guitars, is there a difference quality-wise? I mean, of course there is, between a vintage guitar that I guess has been in great condition versus something that is, a, say, a reproduction. Yeah, yeah. Even the um, what used to be called a student model in the fifties mm-hmm. was that like the jazz master? Uh, well, or the music master? So yeah, in in the in the Fender world, it would be a like a, a duo sonic or a uh yeah a music, you could literally music say master. anything yeah and i would be like yeah that's right <laughs> but i'm i'm thinking of more like um like if you went to montgomery wards in the late 50s and bought an acoustic guitar it would b- have been made out of really nice woods mm-hmm. even if even a 50 dollar guitar right would have Brazilian rosewood fingerboard, which you can't even use anymore. It was banned in the mid-60s. Wow. Yeah. Is it because it was endangered? It was farmed yeah. Wow. Uh, solid wood, top, back and sides, put together by hand, dovetail, neck joint, all put together with hide glue, which now only high-end instruments are made with that. Wow. Kind of stuff. So even, even a student model from back then is superior would be superior to I mean now if you went and bought a fifty dollar guitar, it would be a lot like the fifty dollar coffee maker you buy. Mm-hmm. It's not expected to last. It's not expected to last. It's made out of inferior materials. It's something that you're going to use for a year or two and then upgrade, right, to something that maybe isn't necessarily your favorite. Yeah, and I collect. One of the things I collect is kind of the lower tier guitars from the 
40s, 50s, 60s, because they're still affordable and they're made to a way better standard than student guitars are now. Mm-hmm. They're very cool. So like Harmony guitars, K, you know, it's kind of Dan Electro, Silver Tone, kind of the lower tier below. Like the top is Fender, mm-hmm. Gibson, Martin, Gretsch, Rickenbacker, then the lower tier, the second tier stuff, the American made second tier stuff is is kind of where I usually collect things because most fenders from the fifties are just out of my price range. I mean they're they're twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars, some of them. Has it always been that big of a price discrepancy or is that more because of the progression of the internet and collectors and it's happened slowly over time. It really started to take off in the 80s, but even before that, like, for example, Gibson made a Les Paul signature model guitar in the late 50s. Now, if I say the word Les Paul, if I say the name Les Paul, do you think of the guy Les Paul? Or no, do you think of the no, guitar? The guitar, the guitar, for sure. So, and that's how everybody is. See, at the time, even in the late 50s, this was by this was coming up on the end of Les Paul's career. He was a guitar he was like the guitar wizard of the forties. Wow. He was like the Jimi Hendrix of the forties, like if you can say that. But he was the guitar hero of the day. Wow. And so towards the end of his career, Gibson made this signature model for him. And it just wasn't popular. They they made a few hundred a year for I think fifty eight, fifty nine, and sixty. They didn't make that many. Sales were disappointing. They discontinued it. I'm sorry, I missed it. Was it electric? Yeah. Okay. The Les Paul, the Gibson Les Paul. Yeah. Which is ubiquitous now. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's the, it's the same to me as Fender. Like, it's synonymous in what the imagery is for me. Well, what happened is, about 10 years later, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, Mm. all these guys played these 10-year-old guitars, and they liked the Les Paul model. Mm -hmm. And so it became something to... uh, it, it it became more valuable. This this guitar nobody wanted 10 years before, now all of a sudden you've got Led Zeppelin and you've got Eric Clapton, you've got the Yardbirds, you've got, you know, Derek and the Dominoes or whatever band Eric Clapton was doing at the time, Blind Faith. And um, all the, all the up-and-coming guitar players were like, dude, I need... What What is that? That's a Les Paul. I'm going to find one of those. And it's it's still revered as and that it, today. Yeah, yeah. So it... So the... So for 10 years, that guitar languished as an unwanted, forgotten signature model of Les Paul, the guitar player, right? And now we don't even, it's like this dissociation. We don't even link that guitar model with that guy. Same with Leo Fender. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't get told that it's a person tied to the name. So what happened is that guitar became um, desirable 10 years later. And then it's just climbed from there. And now if you find, let's say you found a mint condition 1959 Gibson Les Paul, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, you would be buying it from an auction. You wouldn't be able to find that. Well, there's there's vintage guitar shops that, that will have, I think Emerald City Guitars has two or three right now. Jeez. But they're probably, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars. Oh. Yeah, it's crazy. Because they didn't make that many. And this is the secret formula for any collectible this is what will determine whether or not something old is valuable rarity condition and demand Mm -hmm. those are the three factors on anything whether it's 
old records, an old lamp, an old car, an old guitar. If it's rare, if it's in good condition, and if it has high demand, it'll have value. And yeah. so that's why some of the second tier guitars like harmonies and k's mm -hmm. even if you find one in good condition they're not particularly particularly rare because they made a gazillion of them and the demand just isn't what it is for some other guitar models yeah so that's um it's a question i used to get a lot when i worked at emerald city guitars in seattle a tourist would come in off the street and not even really maybe a passing interest in guitars, you know, but not really, really into it. Sure. And they'd see we'd have guitars for forty, fifty, two hundred thousand dollars, and they would say, "Um, excuse me, why? This guitar looks just like that one. That one's two hundred dollars, uh -huh. and that one's forty thousand dollars. Why? Condition, rarity, and demand, and." There's a big difference between a 1959 mm -hmm. Stratocaster and a 1999 Stratocaster. They made a bazillion 1999 Stratocasters, and it was made in a different factory at a different time with different standards, with different materials, by different people, just completely different. Yeah, now, at that point, had it, had it been sold again? So it was since CBS in 99? Uh, the Fender Company has changed hands several times, yeah. Yeah, and at that point, it's it's damn near automated production. Well, and it's really, you know, Leo Fender stopped making guitars in 1964 under the name Fender. So a modern Fender is made by some people who own the name. But to me, it's not really even a Fender guitar. No, it's not the same. Uh, it is, legally, and I understand that. And some, some people get mad when I say that. But um, to me, if it says Fender on it, I want one made under the watchful eye of leo fender <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah when the i mean it was all hand done and it was uh it was a love affair for them to make great guitars yeah totally and great amplifiers yeah yeah absolutely well and you know we talk it's just i without without early vintage electric guitars the music we have today would never exist no no and it 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 still blows my mind when i think about you know, we were talking about um, the thought and the quality and the level of design that went into just everyday items mm -hmm. in the 40s and 50s. It's amazing to me that the electric guitar boom happened at the same time. Those designs, those guitar designs fit right in with Eames-era furniture and like a, a boomerang or kidney-shaped table. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just so happened that the boom in electric guitars happened at a, at a time when, when people were really concerned with design and simplicity and lines and beauty and... Quality. And quality. And we're lucky that that happened when it did. Yeah, for sure. Because the electric guitar wouldn't be the same as it, as it, as it was if that hadn't all happened simultaneously. And it's probably... That's probably the way it had to happen. Yeah. You know? Well, and it was organic on both sides. You know, you have the, it, an incredible change in not only the world, because it's after the Second World yeah. War. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have industrialization happening. You have sub suburbs popping up. Yep. 
everybody is hungry for something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was like they were grabbing for straws. They were just like, this has never happened. And this has never happened. We've never done this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where my love affair with it comes to do is the innovation mm-hmm. of that time is like a fairy tale to me. Yeah. It's beautiful. The, every, I, yeah, I don't have any other word for it. It's fascinating to me too, that there were so many people creating things mm-hmm. without knowing yeah. what other people were creating. Yeah. Cause it's not like it is today. Yeah. You know, you couldn't rip somebody off by seeing something online, you know, mm-hmm. the next day somebody's making sure you don't have a patent or a trademark or whatever. Yeah. And that, that, that it all went stitched together. Yeah. And, the kind of the timeline of things as far as guitars goes is fascinating to me. Like we just associate electric guitars with rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Well, electric guitars were around for quite a while before rock and roll was even a thing. Well, and we couldn't have rock and roll without. Right. So electric guitars kind of facilitated that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was unforeseen completely. I mean, Leo Fender, when he was designing guitars in the late forties, he was thinking Western swing. Yeah, those were his people. He wasn't thinking about Elvis Presley or Buddy Holly or anything like that. No. I mean, that wasn't no. a thing yet. Or, well, I mean, because yeah. you are a huge blues fan. I love the blues. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. But that is, that's one of the things of that you can really see at the, in that era of music how important the electric guitar was for the emotion that yeah. comes through in blues music and blues yeah. guitar music. Yeah. Melissa always laughs at me for listening to some of that stuff because she thinks of it as like old people music. But to <laughs> me, the, there couldn't be a more valid representation of young people's music than blues. I mean, Muddy Waters in the 50s, or I, I like acoustic blues like Robert Johnson, you know, from the 30s. Um, you listen to those recordings, and yeah, I get it. It sounds dated, and it's a scratchy old recording, but... That was, that guy was like 22 years old you're listening to. I mean, that's young people's music. And it was, it was the punk rock of its day. Right. I mean, it was rebellious music played by people who were, who were really outcasts from society. I mean, imagine being, being black in the thirties in America, the challenges you face. And on top of that, you're an itinerant musician. Right. It's like you're black twice. Right. You're, you're going to be a traveling musician. I mean, <clears throat> that music historically and what that music means mm-hmm. just makes the hair on my arms stand up. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. Mm-hmm. I just love everything about it. And it's, you know, I think we spend so much time on like taking a lot of uh, history or facts that we have at face value and mm-hmm. not not really rolling it around to think of all those aspects. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, because it was, I mean, it was, it was monumental, monumental. For sure. And like that first time when I heard Etta James and Billy holiday and I started to dive into that world, mm-hmm. I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could <clears throat> hear the soul in their yeah. voice. Right. And it brings me joy. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the reason I collect the things I do. I, col- I want to collect things that bring me joy. Yeah. And I want to listen to music that brings me joy. Like, if it doesn't bring you joy, what are you doing? Right. You know? And I think, you know, you get closer to that the older you get. And you start to move away from liking things for the acceptance of your peers. Yeah. And I've always been on the opposite side of that 
train. Yeah. And I, I, it's so freeing to get to a point where you're like, yeah, I'm going to listen to big band while I do yard work. Mm-hmm. Kiss my ass if you don't <laughs> yeah, like it. Right. Neighbor. <laughs> right. Or I'm going to listen to, you know, 1970s classic rock while I mow the yard or sure. do this or. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And well, you, I want, just because I'm nosy on the music side of it. Can you say some of the people you've fixed or made guitars for? Because you're humble about it, but uh, to me, it's cool. Well, the one that stands out to me, um, one of my heroes uh, is a guy named Jimmy Vaughn. Oh. Do you know who Jimmy Vaughn is? Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughn's older brother. He taught Stevie Ray Vaughn how to play guitar, right? Jimmy Vaughn was famous before Stevie Ray Vaughn was. He was in a band called the Fabulous Thunderbirds, which is a great blue, blues band. The name 70s. is exceptional. The Fabulous Thunderbirds became a pop band. Like, if you listen to their 80s stuff, it's not the same. Their first two or three records from the 70s are just dynamite, real I'm going to have to blues. look them up after Good we leave stuff. here today. Um, one day I'm working in my little guitar shop in the back of Emerald City Guitars, and here comes this entourage of people. And uh, my coworker leading them and brings them back into my shop, and they all kind of part. And in walks oh. Jimmy Vaughn with a guitar case, and my coworker <laughs> Trevor, whose eyes were like the size of saucers, like he wants to be like, dude, you're never gonna uh, fucking believe who's behind me, Eric. <laughs> this gentleman would like some guitar work done. I mean, <clears throat> they they knew exactly what this meant to me because. Like, I don't shut up about Jimmy Vaughn when we're talking about music, right? So Jimmy Vaughn walks in to my little repair shop and opens up his guitar case. And he's like, hey, man, we're playing in town. Can you uh, can you go over my strap for me? I heard you do good work or whatever. You know, and you were like, okay, first of all, you want me to work on your guitar. Second of all, you know who I am. It was beautiful because he just stood next to my bench and talked to me while I worked on his guitar. And it was great. It was just great. It was like we were old friends, and it was so fun. Um, it was just completely natural, and he, he was just so nice. Wow. And then he brought up Buddy Holly. Like, he brought it up to me. He brought up all these things that, I, that have influenced my life and these things that I think about. And we're talking and talking, and, and our, our feet accidentally bumped each other. And, and I you looked made down. eye contact and you leaned. Yeah, yeah. No, you, no. <laughs> I looked down and we have the exact same boots on. <laughs> oh. The exact same black cowboy boots. And uh, it was just this, it was like, it was like I was adopted and my real father came to visit me. <laughs> Dad? <laughs> yeah. It was so weird. And he told me things about guitar and guitar playing and about music we spent maybe an hour together oh but he gosh. told me things in that hour that to this day still influence the way i play the way i string my guitars the the kind of strings that i use you know um it was really a magical day <laughs> so i worked on his guitar i've worked for katie lang i've worked for billy gibbons zz top wow um, i've oh worked gosh. for the black crows there's a lot of Seattle bands that are more modern music that I don't really, I don't really know. I like I don't listen to their music, but I know they're huge names, you know. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I don't listen to their music, I can't really think of them. That's <laughs> no, those names. are that's but if you named some Seattle bands. I would probably say yeah, those. Which, guys. if I can say, I think that's endearing. 
Like it goes to show truly Thanks, who you are as a person. Because it's embarrassing to no, me. Oh, no. I feel bad. Yeah. Like I worked on these guys' guitars and I know their names, but I don't really know. They probably about appreciate their music. that. Maybe I don't know. You know, to know that yeah. you genuinely just love what you do, and you're not doing it to meet people like them. Like yeah. to you, they're just guitar owners. Sure. And that's probably so refreshing for them. Maybe yeah. Especially the bigger you would get to trust yeah. somebody with your instruments. Yeah, yeah. Well, and. It just it just came out of a, a passion that I had for how things work and guitars, and they just kind of melded into one career. And it it really wasn't a plan. It just that's just how it went. And when I started working on guitars, you couldn't just Google how to do it. I had yeah. to collect books and I had to seek out people that knew more than I did and and find out things. And you know now you could probably become a pretty good luthier. I hate that word, but it's, that's the word that applies to my career. Uh, you could probably become a pretty good luthier in a, a lot shorter amount of time than what it took me. I say on my podcast, I've been at it for 25 years, which makes me sound older than the hills. But it's <laughs> but you started true at a really because young age. just, yeah, like I was a teenager. Yeah. I'm 44 now. Yeah. And that's what, that's what, you know, listening to that makes me think that the Buddy Holly thing wasn't such a coincidence. Maybe. Like yeah. it's you know that first initial like okay here's your here's your path do with it what you will yeah take this and run yeah, with it right yeah <laughs> and you really do you hope to pass like what do you hope to pass on to your sons with your one collection and appreciation wise what do you hope they learn from your collection and Melissa's collecting when I think about my my boys I have two boys two little boys and uh like my capacitor collection or my matchbook collection or my jar of random dice or my 50s lamps i never think about them in that context i want for them to find joy in their lives and if that involves my collection or my my knowledge about guitars you know if they're interested in that then great but if they're not interested in that man the last thing i want for them is to be a guitar tech and hate it so I want them to find what brings them joy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I say to Melissa all the time, because your boys are the sweetest, kindest little boys. Thanks. And I tell Melissa often, I say, your boys are so lucky to have two parents that do what they love and teach them real life application of finding your joy and finding fulfillment outside of yeah. the commercial <laughs> world. And that's so rare. Yeah. You guys are really, so. you're really winning at that. Well, and I, I try to embrace gratitude because, um, you know, the grass is always greener and everybody goes through depression and everybody mm -hmm. has uh, difficult days. I try to keep things in perspective that I have my dream job and my dream wife and my dream house and I need to be grateful mm -hmm. for that, yeah. for that life. And it, because it, it hasn't always been that way, you know. Yeah. I was a I was a miserable son of a bitch twenty years ago. Miserable. Mm -hmm. um, I'd been through a lot that I just kicked. Life just kicked me in the teeth. My best friend died. I had um, I was engaged to a gal who just broke my heart, and then I ran off and married the first girl I saw, and then she broke my heart, and it just just was one thing after another for like I don't know five yeah. or ten years. Just yeah. I don't take what I have now for granted. And even though things like this 50s lamp that I'm looking at across the room, 
even though that brings me joy, I want to remember something happened to me. It was before I left Idaho Falls. I, I, a, f- a friend of mine is a collector, mm-hmm. right? And he just had the most amazing collection, just stuff that you would just die for. Like you, I would go to his house and just, wow, man, where did you get this? Wow. And I was looking at some item that he had, and he said, you know what this is, right? And I said, well, yeah, it's a, you know, 1950, whatever. No. This is a replacement for love. Wow. He said, I have a hole in my heart, and I fill it with this stuff. Holy cow. And he was admitting to me, look, I'm a broken human being, and I collect this stuff as a replacement for love. And that was like a bucket of water th- being thrown at my face. Yeah. And I realized at that moment, oh, crap, I'm doing the same thing. And I decided then and there that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to f- patch a broken soul by collecting junk and trying to fill a void yeah. with things. And so as much as I love the stuff I collect and as much joy as it brings me, I could take it all to the dump because my joy is in my 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 family and the relationships that I have and looking in the faces of my children. So I try really hard not to let the things I collect overtake my life because there's a lot of people that collect mm-hmm. things that are, they're really broken people. Yeah, yeah. And they're trying to fill a void. Yeah, I think that is one of the most important lessons if you take anything away from the show, it's that, <laughs> you know, don't, you, and, you know, I'm a huge advocate for mental health and figuring out where your broken spots are Yeah, and be honest about it. You'd be surprised how many people around you struggle with their broken bits yep. and all other people want is it an understanding Yeah, and to know, oh, I'm not the only one with this. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, especially now through the pandemic, mm. I think a lot of people are realizing that in themselves that being, you know, stuck in your home mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And they look around and it's like, is this what I want? Yeah. I don't think yeah. I want this anymore. It brought a lot of uh, things that we bury with work and busyness and uh, going out or shopping straight into your focus. Mm-hmm. If you, if you were home. Yeah, and for me personally, because a lot of people are like, I'm done, I'm done. I don't want to be with my husband anymore. I'm done. Mm-hmm. It's brought me and my husband closer. Yeah. Nice. Like, we yeah. really have appreciated what we have done for each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the thing, too, is Jill and her husband sold their home last year mm-hmm. and then moved into a duplex. So they're renting and then building and then no, without knowing that any of this was going to happen. Yeah. So they were like unintentionally pared down into a tighter spot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, we literally we with us, our two kids and our two dogs in this really tight quarters. It's. It's brought us closer, and it's also now we're like, okay, we're ready for a little space. But, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I The pandemic for us almost was better for us wow. than ruining. Yeah. I would agree. It really, I went through such a powerful, and I don't want to cry, but ugh, I'm such a bitch. Um, I went through such a powerful metamorphosis during this like the 10 weeks i was home and unemployed yeah 10 weeks without income yeah and i just went 
money doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Things don't mean anything. Yeah. I have to do what lights me on fire. Yeah. And that's this. That's yeah. what you listen to every yeah. week. Right on. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Is this. Well, and that's what, that's one of the things that I love about your show is, <clears throat> yeah, it's about stuff. It's about collections. It's about antiques. But more than that, it's about the stories and it's about the people yeah. behind it and why they collect what they do and, and what their passion is and what their love is. Because stuff is super cool. Yeah. But people can't be replaced. Yeah. yeah. You can replace For stuff. Sure. You can't yeah. replace your loved ones. No. And, you know, you, it, it becomes really obvious to you when you lose one. Yeah, then to me, the turning point for stories and history was when my grandfather passed away suddenly. I mean, there was no signs, nothing. He was, we, it was the day that his book launched and he got the final dust cover and he had had a brain bleed for several weeks and it was unnoticed. So literally one side of his brain flooded. Wow. And he, it's, it's serendipitous because he sat down to have dinner with my grandma, got up, went to his computer saw the final dust cover for his book before it went to publishing and he was dead an hour later. Wow. Yeah. And his last Facebook post was, look at how great this is. <laughs> and I was just like, from that moment on, I went, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to live life for the stories and the memories and the things I can't take to the bank. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to really drive it all <laughs> wow. the way down here. So I wanted to do, and I had some, I had a little help from a friend with this estate so long. <laughs> I won't call anybody out. What's her last name, Daw? Maybe. She's, you wouldn't know her. Yeah, no, right. She's really... No. She's just somebody she I reached out to. She didn't have an evil laugh with this either. <laughs> we did it while we did her hair this last week. <laughs> I said, will you help me write this for Eric? So we're, we, we placed it here in town because you have such an affinity for Idaho Falls. Yeah. And so we placed this. This estate sale is over in the Gustafsson neighborhood behind Toffus Park. Oh, yeah. I love that neighborhood. (laughs) We love Love. it. It is this cute little tucked away mid-century time capsule Mm -hmm. in Idaho Falls. If you were a doctor in the 50s, that's where you live. For sure. And you laughed at all the peasants around you. I can totally see that. Yeah. That was the fancy part of town. Yeah. And it's still, it's quiet. You can't, you have no reason to take any of the streets through that neighborhood to get to anywhere in town. It's literally set. No. And every time I do go down there for whatever reason, I always feel like people are out there like, that car doesn't belong Who's this lady? And it's that way by design. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. And it's, oh, it's a beautiful neighborhood. It's so pretty. So we're, we're over in that neighborhood. Okay. We're at a beautiful mid-century house. Pick whichever is your liking. We come in through the garage because... We had to peek through all the shit in there first. <laughs> we come in through the kitchen and... Wait, the garage is usually my favorite part. We're not stopping. <laughs> but they have a <laughs> big shop in the back. Oh, oh, okay. So <laughs> the garage, everything from the garage has been moved to that area. There's more room because it's the size of your garage. So we walk into the kitchen and the first things we see on the table, among the various things, I mean, there's coffee cups and glassware and utensils, but there's two of your favorites. There's a cast iron set. Mm-hmm. Well seasoned. Okay. Chef's kiss. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there's also a percolator coffee pot. Mm. And you can only <laughs> take one home. <laughs> Melissa isn't here with you at the sale. I'm I'm taking I'm taking the coffee pot. I'm taking the percolator. Okay. Cast iron. And I'm going only because now you've given me something else to fucking look for is the percolator. And the reason I'm taking the percolator is because I'm running low on percolators. 
<laughs> I've I recently sent one to a a friend and I had one that the element burned out on, so I, I think I only have two or three in the basement. So listeners, keep your eyes peeled. They have to be Farberware. Yeah. Uh, and I have probably six or eight cast iron pans, and they just don't wear out. So no, I'm no. I'm good. And there. I'm just yeah. I'm just making yeah. my collection too of cast iron a little bit more extensive. So oh, that was a my tough gosh. choice. I love cooking with cast iron. I do too. It's the best. If you know how to do it, it's it is it really is. Um, I mean, it's it's more nonstick than like Teflon. Yeah. yeah. If you and when you go back from working in a cast iron to something like that, it's infuriating. It is. I know. Well, since we've lived in this apartment, I had to cut down all my cookingware, and since nobody in my family knows how to cook with the oh, cast geez. iron, yeah. right? I took the regular stuff, and I'm like, I just want my cast I iron. Like this we so much. sound so old. This we confounded really new Teflon. <laughs> this gosh darn These stuff. kids and their Teflon. <laughs> Get out of my throw, yard. You donate this. I'm tired of this shit. I have to scrape <laughs> off eggs one more time. Give me cast iron just like You're, granddaddy used to use. Like, give me my cast iron or give can, me death. Yeah, my husband can attest. I get very, <laughs> very angry. All right, so we made our way through the kitchen. We got our wares. We set them on the table outside. And we're coming back in and we're headed straight to the basement, which is like a time capsule in and of itself. It's mid-century. It's great, but it's also it's somebody's own personal arcade. And down there, we have the choice to make... There's three pinball machines in various states of disrepair, okay? And there are a lot, but they, <laughs> but they need some work, okay? They're not going to be usable for a little bit. The other thing we have to choose from is a Fender Tweed Deluxe amp oh, from 1956. Oh, I'm taking the Fender Tweed Deluxe. <laughs> are you kidding me? I was like, I, was, I thought I really had you with that one, the three. I really tried to jazz up the pinball. I want a pinball machine so bad. I really do. But putting it up against that is not a fair. Well. Oh, you foundering? I, I, pinball is something that I love. And I, a, an old friend of mine used to have several pinball machines. And it was just the best. Like, to be able to play your own pinball machine. Right. Like, I thought, oh, this guy's got it made. Um, I want pinball machines. But that's not my career. I have a career in buying and selling and collecting and fixing up old guitars and amplifiers. So and that I, like... I would take that amp, okay. absolutely. Bill. I think I'd go for the pinball yeah. machines. Yeah. They're huge. I know. And they we, need work. We brought a truck. <laughs> we brought a we truck. We brought a truck. We brought a U-Haul. Yeah, we're good. She's just going to bring the pinballs to your house. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I've never fixed one. So I don't know if I could. I probably. I mean, if those are one of the things I always wish I could just saw in half, just so I could right. watch so like all the, the mechanisms. The parts. And stuff. I think there's a How It's Made episode on them. They're so cool. Listen, they're, don't sell yourself short. Mechanical. You fucking made eyeglasses <laughs> for Melissa. Yeah. <laughs> so you're Tim the Toolman Taylor okay. of tinkering. Okay. All right. Here's your badge. I could try. I could try. <laughs> it's a pinball machine. I used you can to, YouTube it. I used to have a jukebox in my old farmhouse in Idaho. Oh. In Osgood, and uh, I I tinkered on that, and I could fix that. So I could, maybe I could tinker with it. I'm pretty machine. sure you pretty should sure totally give you do a couple it. months at it. All right, um, we have a two more choices. I really wrote a good one for you. Okay. Over in the spare bedroom, they have all the other stuff spread out, but inside of this bedroom there are, and these are two separate lots. Okay, they're trying to move some shit. Mm-hmm. There's Idol Falls ephemera jars of dice and matchbooks. And but the other side is ticket stubs, vintage ticket stubs, and um, vintage Idaho Falls advertisements and 
calendars. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah, we did you, it. We got it. We did it. Ticket stubs and Idaho Falls advertising ephemera. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm probably going with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go with the other side of it, the jars of dice. Yeah. yeah. I love dice. What is it about dice? I know. They're just satisfying. I love the matchbooks. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I don't see them We anymore. should get matchbooks made. We totally Dude. should. Dude. Yeah. For your yeah. podcast, mm-hmm. Mothball Prophecies. Uh, matchbooks. Yeah. Fender. Just send them to people. We should get <laughs> shitty watches made, too, like the Fender <laughs> dealer watch. <laughs> okay. Now we're excited. You've, we've saved it, and you're a little pissed at us that we've waited this long to get outside to the shop. <laughs> This might possibly be the hardest choice you've ever made. <laughs> All right. You have to choose. Back in the shop, it's sizable, okay? The first thing you see is the tail end of a beautiful 1949 Plymouth coupe in flat black. Ugh. See that beautiful <laughs> butt just looking at you. But then in the foreground just past it is the Hub Bar neon sign. You're welcome. <laughs> How much money did I bring? It's they're made up, so you have infinite. (laughs) (laughs) But you can only pick Uh, only one. See, this is why I hate these because Mm -hmm. I never can pick. Man, it's made up. Yeah, it's not going to null and void any choice (laughs) in the future. Right. See, this is where I fail because I'm. I think practicality. Like, okay, where am I going to put another car? I already have a car, a classic car that's already in my way. So. Where am I going to put another one? But <laughs> if I get it, then now I have an excuse to actually get a storage unit that would fit two cars. And it's, it's true. I mean, it's a I mean, black, flat, black coupe. I'm and it going just, with the car. Oh, wow. I was. You were sure I was going to take the. Uh, I was. The I had no. I didn't know. Because I, when I yeah. wrote that, I felt bad. A little bit. <laughs> I felt a little bit of guilt. And that's saying something because she never feels bad when she writes these that to me. neon no. sign is such a part of my childhood. And I loved that the hub bar in Idaho Falls, which is long gone, had the most amazing neon sign of a cowgirl lassoing a martini. And it would move, right? And they had her the spokes would... on the outside of the yes. bar, the wagon and spokes. And at night, you know, you'd drive by and her arm is going back and forth <sighs> and she's lassoing the martini. And I grew up in such a religious household that I thought that sign was really, really naughty. <laughs> Scandalous. Like, I thought it was super risque. Heathens. Like, don't let mom and dad catch you looking at that sign. Yeah, like you just glance at it. You always have I your mean, sunglasses with you. Which is funny <laughs> to me now because you look at it now. Like, I have a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll put it up on gone. the Instagram. Oh, it's cool. great. Uh, it's long gone, but I have a picture of it. And um, you look at it now and it's just... It's pretty innocent. Very innocent. Totally innocent. Well, and you run, so you have an Instagram where you post all these great vintage pictures. What's the name of that Instagram of Idol Falls? Oh, you're going to out me? I think that it's so great. Secret. Never mind. Just kidding. (laughs) Cut that. Just, we're just, I love it because it's, it's, uh, now that I'm driving around, I Uh see those like flashes pop into my brain of what it used to look like. Years ago, I started collecting pictures online of Idaho Falls. Old pictures. Just when I saw one, I would, oh, there's another one. Click, save, wow. put, it in a, put it in a folder. That's I cool. have like four over 400 pictures of old pictures of Idaho Falls from the like Wild West days uh-huh. up to like the 90s because yeah. there's businesses that are gone that didn't close that long ago. You know? It's very, very cool. And it's one of those things I collect that is totally free. It's completely free. I find the pictures online. I put it in a file. 
And every now and then I look at these pictures, I'm like, wow, look at that. I remember that. Or look, that's before my time, but I know right where this is. And mm-hmm. and it just brings, it's just another one of those things that bring me joy. I love For it. some weird reason, I just got into that. So I decided a while ago I should just start an Instagram account and post one picture a day. It's it. called Vintage Idaho Falls. Vintage underscore Idaho underscore Falls. And it's just old pictures of my hometown. That's all it is. And, and I think there's 300 or so followers. You know, I'm sure they're all people that live in town. And mm-hmm. It's just fun for me. Yeah, yeah. it's things you can't necessarily find anymore. Yeah. Those images. Yeah. And that, you know, the depiction of the, the time. Yeah. That it was. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. This has been a delight. Thank you. It's so hot. to sit down yeah. and talk with you guys. We're gonna have to have you and Melissa back on together <laughs> in the future to talk more about the the mid century stuff in your home. Okay. And just because we're we're selfish and we want to sit down with you guys, I know way. this is how everything is. We're gonna have everybody back probably at least at five point. times <laughs> yeah. because it's like this is fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for in uh, having us in your beautiful home today, sitting down with us, being so candid about your life and your life and collecting. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Thanks to everybody for listening. Yeah, thanks, guys. And as always, we hope you find some good shit and always look under the table. Thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with him in his home. You know, at the beginning of this, when you and I started the show, Melissa was just an acquaintance, really, to both of us. Yeah. And now going, oh, you know, I've been to their house several times. They do live down the street from me, mm-hmm. you know, and we sit and talk. And with the first time I heard Eric's story outside of the show, I was just like, man, we got to have you on the show. Like he is. Yeah. And I, he almost brought another layer to this whole podcast um, because you get you got you got a brief, a brief flash of yeah. what he went from, from the beginning to where he is now. Yeah. And it was almost humbling because it was like, yeah, you know, we all have that every once in a while. For sure. And we all have, you know, we all have those moments in our life that, that change us in two ways, either for the better mm-hmm. or for the worse, as cliche as it may sound. Yeah. And it is, it is up to you to kind of drive yourself in either direction and, One of my favorite podcasts, one of the quotes um, from Marcus Parks of Last Podcast on the Left, he says, your mental health is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. And it's your responsibility to be like, oh, I am not operating at 100%. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of people. Yes. Because it's, there's such a stigma on it Mm -hmm. that it's. Which is like, what the fuck? Who created that shit? I don't. Like, what kind know. of media propaganda was it to be like, hey, sorry, you can't be sad and maybe hate things? Well, and, like, right off the bat, I had really bad postpartum depression. 100%. And that's when I just remember laying in bed like, fuck it. Fuck mm-hmm. it all. And then I was like, oh, fuck. This is what they talk about. Shit, I need to call the doctor right now. See, and I had, like, this is just briefly, I had depression uh, diagnosed, clinically diagnosed at, like, 13. Mm-hmm. Runs in the family. And I was like, when I had my son, I was like, all eyes on postpartum depression, like right. looking for the signs, looking for this. And you knew me during this period, mm-hmm. too. And I completely blew past postpartum anxiety. Right. And it was that first year, looking back, was awful. 
awful. Yeah. And, you know... And then I got on the right medication. I went and talked to my doctor, a great doctor who believes in uh, mental health care. And he put me on the proper medication. The medication I was on previously from a different doctor Mm -hmm. wasn't even correct for what I was, what my diagnosis was. And when I started taking that, it was like I could crawl out from underneath of a heavy wet blanket. Yeah. It's like the, the veil is off and you're seeing stuff again. It was... And I, that's what I always tell people because they're always like, oh, yeah, I'm put on this medication. And it's like, I don't yeah. think it's working. And yeah. I always tell them, I was like, there's so many out there. For sure. There's not just a handful. Don't like just because your doctor said, take this, it's going to fix it. I was like, you are your advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. And if it's not working, try, something, try else. something else. Yep. And, you know, if you don't have anybody in your life to personally reach out to, reach out to us. Yeah. We're your moms now. We are. I adopt. <laughs> I've adopted. Jill's a lot worked of in the medical field for a long time. I've taken medication for a long time <laughs> and have been it through therapy several times in my life. If you don't have anybody safe in your life to reach out to, reach out to us, okay? Yeah, we are happy. I I especially am happy to help. And one of our two favorite things that we cannot start our day without is coffee. And oh <laughs> and Eric was such a gracious host. He as soon as we got he's like do you guys want a cup of coffee? Jill and I immediately, yes. Yeah. And, and he had just posted that he only mm-hmm. makes coffee from a percolator. Yep. And that's when I was like, this is our in. I know. I was like, well, yeah, I saw that. I got to know the difference. And the cutest, we got it in the, uh, it's just so fucking on brand for both him and Melissa. The cutest goddamn coffee cups. Oh. That were vintage. I'm like, oh, is this like my complimentary cup to take home? I guess, is this our thank you gift for interviewing you? <laughs> But no, so he did offer us the percolated coffee and it was... It was so good. It was really good. But so the brand he uses is a Farberware percolator, which we didn't find a lot on that. But on percolated coffee, there's like tons. Yeah. And even like the Farberware website, you would think would have like an extensive article considering, you know, they have been doing this for a while. Yeah. It was like maybe a paragraph. And that is the only kind he uses. The only like, one. Yeah. He was very, very upfront with that. But so this source comes from percolatorcoffee.org. Um, Faberware is an American made company that has been around for 120 years, creating innovation for the American home from its cookware to tea kettles to coffee pots. You have probably seen some Farberware in your life and didn't notice. We talk about Farberware percolators specifically with Eric. Farberware percolators made their debut on the American market in the 1930s. They were all chrome in the kettle with a Bakelite base, as well as the knob of Bakelite on top of the lid. Which, if you heard from our previous ones, I was like, what? What? Jill's as soon as I felt her spidey senses tingle while we were recording. And then Eric went, but it doesn't touch the coffee. <laughs> mom. He's like, hold back, mom. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm just I'm just making sure. We're just I just mom wants to make sure you're all right. I mean, I care about you. <laughs> the so the percolators are still among collectors' favorites, as many of the models are still used today. You don't have to worry about it breaking. And if it does, you can still find a replacement element if needed. Which, 
it's funny because when we did the estate sale, he was just like, break it later. He's like, yeah, I got it. I only have a couple and I'm going to need that in case something breaks. And, you know, they're interesting shaped because it's not like a traditional kettle. You know, they don't have like the big, long elephant trunk spout. No. It's kind of, it reminds me of, you know, the, the meet, meet me guys or the, what the fuck? Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, those Muppets. That's what the, (laughs) the bottom lip is. That's the kettle. And then the handle's kind of shaped like a comet, a comma, not a comma. A <laughs> Flying through the sky. It's just coming to you straight <laughs> with coffee. And I, I feel like now I need to get a percolator just for when I have company to really flex on them. I know. Well, and then I got to thinking when we go camping, we use the, we've used that percolator kettle. Right. Thing. It just feels so fucking primitive. Yeah. Look at us we're, making coffee over we're making a fire. it the old fashioned <laughs> way, guys. Uh, I remember my grandpa was very, my grandfather was super particular about the coffee he drank. And when he passed away, that was the only thing I asked for was his French press and his coffee cup, which is from the INL here in town. And uh, he went to a conference in Las Vegas. They handed out these coffee cups. I'll post it on the Instagram. And the coffee cup says glowing with pride. And no, nobody <laughs> saw that as a bad thing no. until after they handed them out and somebody went, uh, probably shouldn't be our slogan. Uh, yeah, like. Uh. So then they were going around to get all the cups back from people. Well, my grandpa put his in his jacket and was like, fuck off and left with it. Hell yeah, because, you know, I mean, not the best slogan, but also funny as hell. Super funny. Like they could have just kept it as a joke, but. Yeah. So it was, so I have this coffee cup that says glowing with pride and the town that I'm not from the town, but I moved here when I was 19. I'm from a smaller town that is, it's like a village. It's about seven miles south of here, which is where my family settled. Yada, yada. We get it, Sam. And the city of Idaho Falls has a, it's written about in my great grandfather's diaries as a place he would come to sell livestock or buy farming equipment. Mm. Or things like that. But um, this information about Idaho Falls is from good old Wikipedia and idahofallsidaho.gov. They got that domain name. Yeah, you got to get that quick. You got to get it. So it's a super brief history. I'm obviously not going to go through all of the details. We don't have enough time. And you guys honestly don't give a shit. So the town, um, it started as a humble hamlet settled mostly by cattle and sheep farmers. Because we live in southeastern Idaho and it's a high desert plain. Yeah. So initially, um, upon first glance, it is not farmland in its beginnings. No. It was a desert. coming from an actual city, because I moved here when I was like 25, I was like, where the fuck am I? Yeah, super rural. So Idaho Falls, formerly known as Eagle Rock, was formed in 1864 when a man named Harry Ricketts, that name made me laugh so fucking hard, started a ferry operation on the Snake River. A settlement was then formed around the building of a bridge across the Basaltic Gorge, creating a means of transportation for settlers, miners, and others seeking riches in the gold fields of Idaho and Montana. Because the Snake River bisects the lower half of the state. Mm-hmm. It is a large tributary that leads all the way back to the ocean, connects that different ways. Yeah. So this bridge was truly, uh, it changed the shape of it. And goods and services and different things could be brought in. And by the end of 1865, there were several businesses popping up along the bank of where this bridge is on the Snake River, including a bank, 
a hotel, a small, a small hotel, not a big one, a library stable, which is where you could board your animals for like a week or a day, an eating house, post office, and a stage station had sprung up near the bridge. Eagle Rock, whose name was derived from an isolated basalt island in the river near the ferry, was where approximately 20 eagles would nest, which is why it was called Eagle Rock. I did not know that until today. And it was on its way to becoming a bona fide town. Like any other western town, it was shot into popularity by the way of the rail. And the railroad came up from Utah. And the railroads changed the footprint of many western towns, and Eagle Rock was no exception. With the railroad came settlements and homesteaders, and then all of the people that follow along the railroad to build it, which are of every salt of the earth. And they were carving out their future into this new landscape. And within a decade, there were canals, bridges, dams, and roads. So it was booming at this time. But in 1887, much of the railway business moved south to Pocatello, causing a drastic drop in population for Eagle Rock. It was so bad that the marketing team in Eagle Rock was like, we have to figure out how to get our town back. Mm -hmm. Because once the railway left, almost all the jobs did and all the people that were working in the railroad left. And then the goods that were coming and making this a hub Mm -hmm. were gone. So they were starting to panic. So uh, marketers for the town convinced the town leaders to change the name to Idaho Falls in reference to the rapids below the bridge. There was lots of innovation has sprung up in th- from this small corner of the West, including hydroelectric power plant, which is based just, it's in between where the falls are and where the ferry originated now. Oh, really? Yeah. So that, that bridge by like Smitty's uh-huh. and the, that hotel, yeah. that's the bridge they're talking about. Yeah. Cause you, there's like the, like the date on it too. Is yeah. It like so 19, yeah. And it's, it's like one you can't walk across yeah. and then there's the one you can walk yeah. across. So the original one is the one you can't walk across. That's this bridge that they're talking about here. And then they relaunched the ferry this year. Oh, yeah. But that ferry would come from here and then go down into like Utah and Mm -hmm. connecting states through the Snake River. And then the falls that you see now were created to help this hydroelectric plant. So they're not naturally they're not naturally occurring falls. They're man-made. Yeah, which I I thought half of it was natural and like because yeah. you see that yeah. you can see the cement and all. And that it is stuff. beautiful. I forget how pretty it is because I I live here and I grew up here. Mm-hmm. So this hydroelectric plant helped move water out to the areas of the desert, turning the once bare landscape into the farmland and the large agricultural community that we have today. And when that happened, they could start producing sugar beets, potatoes, peas, grains, and alfalfa. Idaho Falls, so the current population, this was of 2010. So this was a decade ago. So Mm -hmm. I'll be interested to see the numbers from this year's census because it is most definitely larger than this. I would say it had. So the population in 2010 was 56,813. And we have grown exponentially in the last 10 yeah, years. Yeah, so I moved here in 2005. To work, for your husband to work yeah, at? the INL. Which is the Idaho National Laboratory for the Nuclear Reactor. Yeah, and so when we moved here, it was tiny. Because we came from Boise, mm-hmm. which is the capital of Idaho. So it was a huge city. Right. But we even talked talked recently about how much it's grown since we've moved here yeah even yeah the 10 years that i've lived in town i mean we got a costco people we and the biggest one is apparently this side of the mississippi i may be making that up don't fact check me i know it's at least the biggest in idaho but my grandfather when they came home from the service 
came back here and he started working at the INL. Yeah. My for, dad worked at the INL. Mm-hmm. It's, the, I mean, there's uh, so there's at least 5,000 people in this town that yeah, work. Yeah, and they're bringing more and more people every day. It's, yeah, it is. It's one of those things where it's like Detroit. Like if the INL left, the town would fall. Yeah, and I would be moving away. Oh, mm. that makes me very sad. <laughs> You can't move away. No, no, because we have too much in common. <laughs> and another, um, I guess, interesting factoid I didn't know was that the the Buddy Holly Gary Busey. Okay, so when he, because I remember watching that movie, but when he said, it, I was like, no, it's not, because <laughs> it really. I mean, I have, I guess, in my brain, Gary Busey doesn't exist at that age. No, <laughs> and I. It's just the wild-eyed Why? Gary Busey like from that show. Like, he just dropped down, like, ten years ago out of nowhere right. with the guar. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Instead of being, like, uh, uh, yeah, I I just remembered, like, the wild-eyed, crazy-teeth guy from the VH1. Uh, yeah. Was it the rehab one or the love one? I don't, I don't know. know. I'll Google yeah. it right now. Yeah. But um, it was interesting to find out, like, that's, like, Buddy Holly is what, started him down that path which is you know and to look at eric too yeah as soon as he said that i was like oh yeah and he cuts his own hair into that beautiful shape which i'm like how how like i want to watch him cut his hair just because i'm a camp man well and i'm impressed and i'm a licensed hairdresser so that i mean it was a good haircut guys it is good but so we found some um information on mr betty holly and the sources we used were YouTube and Wikipedia, but there's tons out there. Um, but the movie we talk about, the Buddy Holly story, came out in May 18, 1978 and starred Gary Busey as the late Buddy Holly. Charles Harden Holly, known professionally and by his mama as the musician Buddy Holly, was born in Lubbock, Texas. Born to a musical family during the Depression, Holly was surrounded by music, learning to play alongside his siblings. He was a pioneer of rock and roll as we know it, and with the support of his family, he formed his first band, Buddy and the Three Tunes. Performing locally around Lubbock, he didn't start by playing the music we know him for today. He started with country-style music that was popular in the area, which, I mean, given in Texas, I mean, why wouldn't you be playing country music? Right. A turning point for him was when he sat down with Elvis Presley and shared a drink talking about their upbringings from poor families and how they wanted more for their music than the same old country western. Buddy would go on to perform and open for Presley numerous times. Bouncing from acoustic to electric, he landed on the Fender Stratocaster and changed the game of the world of music. Notably, he started out playing country music and the recording label he signed to, Decca, was working on the song, That'll Be the Day. Decca tried to convince Holly to slow the tempo down and make it sound more country. And the initial release did not perform well, and he was released from Decca. He did not give up and headed to New Mexico, and he re-recorded That'll Be the Day the way he wanted it. The Crickets and their unique single topped the charts. Holly separated from the cricket shortly after due to financial struggles and other issues. He went on to tour with the Midwestern parts of the United States. In February 3rd, 1959, 
There was a cold front coming through, and with the tour bus down for repairs, Buddy, 22, decided to charter a plane rather than spend another trip on the school bus. Mm. Holly had hoped he would have time to do some of his laundry as he poorly planned tour route left little time for this. He thought the plane ride would have saved time and he would get some clean clothes out of the deal. On this plane was 17-year-old Richie Valens, the big bopper at the age of 27. The big bopper had been battling the flu and had gotten worse. His bus mate, Waylon Jennings, gave his seat to the big bopper. The plane appeared operational at takeoff, but it was discovered the following morning that the plane had come down at an estimated 170 miles per hour. All three musicians were thrown from the plane. Coroners believe all four men died on impact. Cause of the crash was unknown, but expected to believe that the pilots were inexperienced to fly in blizzard-like conditions that contributed to the crash. This crash rocked the nation, especially Lubbock, Texas. February 3rd is known as the day the music died. It was, and I didn't, I guess I'd never really looked into the history of it as I was researching this. That tour that they went on in the Midwest and the manager that planned it, he just kept booking dates in different towns. And so they didn't have days off. And they were traveling in a tour yeah. bus that was a school bus that they had turned kind of into a tour bus. And it didn't have heat. So they, would, they were saying that they would huddle together in the mm-hmm. aisle and light newspaper on fire and like wrap themselves in blankets. Which, I mean, I don't know. It's so... In hindsight, it like you, if I was, I've been like, no, mm-hmm. we're not doing anymore. We're taking a break. We're sick. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, they didn't. So it was so poorly planned. None of them were wearing clean clothes. No. And then the big bopper, he was so sick. And they, buddy was like, hey, I'm going to get this plane. We're going to fly to the next one. It'll give us some time to relax yeah, yeah, and relax do our laundry. And, and they don't know why the plane went down. There was no calls for distress. The, the, computer or whatever on the plane showed no signal of anything bad happening but they say the pilot who was also young he had four years of flying experience but he didn't have a lot of experience flying in a winter storm which because we get blizzards and winter storms here all the time like driving in it Mm -hmm. It, and just coming like from home to work it's like slow and steady and when you know how to drive in that i mean you pick a spot and you just move towards it but he they say that um, there was another discrepancy of the ground crew and stuff didn't tell him that there was a bad blizzard. So they went up into the air thinking the conditions were all right and favorable-ish to flying into that blizzard. I mean, back then the planes weren't as sophisticated Not now. even, yeah. And so thinking, okay, we're going to land. And then it's all of a sudden, I can't see yeah. where we're landing. And they, you know, there was no witnesses to the crash. It They crashed into a farmer's field. Yeah. So, you know, and there was wreckage just... like 500 feet from the crash site. Yeah. Cause at, coming in at 170 miles. Yeah. It's just, yeah. you implode on yeah. impact. So sad. And they say that, you know, all, all passengers on the plane died on impact, mm-hmm. which we hope. Yeah. But that was, he was only when I was doing this research, I guess in your brain, you always think of people older. And then to find yeah. out that he was 23 years old. Oh, was going to be 23. Yeah. Wait, he just was starting. Wow. Mm. But, you know, music, like young musicians like that, they'll do anything they can to get their name out. And, yeah. they'll, you know, they don't think of it like, oh, you know, I got to take this easy. Yeah. They're trying to get their career started, especially back then. Well, and he was at this point, he was restarting. 
Because yeah. he just left the crickets and he was uh, kind of going out on his own. And and you just wonder today what his music would have been like. Into. Yeah. Well, and the fact that Waylon Jennings was on that tour bus and mm-hmm. was set to be on that flight. Okay. Yeah. And then the big bopper got horribly sick and he went, you know what? I'll stay. I'll hang out on the bus. Yeah. And he made a joke of saying, I'll either meet you at the next town or your plane's going to go down. And for years, he blamed himself for that plane crash. Yeah. I'm one of those people that if you don't want it to happen, you don't put it out into the universe. Because I would, I mean, yeah, you make a, like. It's just a, it's yeah, a it was joke. just a joke. Joking with buddies. Yeah. This is why I always say if you're friends with me and we're leaving each other's presence, I will always say I love you. Mm-hmm. And bye. Oh, yeah. Always. I'm always a big I love you. Mm-hmm. And. And then if I don't, I literally like turn around and go back or call you and be like, love you. Sorry. Bye. I know. I'll text my husband and be like, oh, by the way, I love you. Yeah. Don't forget. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things, which maybe it's a little bit of OCD, which I'm discovering that maybe I have some tendencies with certain things like that because of my anxiety. So <laughs> on that note, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening today. Yes. Follow along with us. Oh, we had another great review. We did. From... We want to thank you. It was a beautiful review. And a big shout out to Echo for um, posting us on your stories. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And the review we got was from Riley Amber. So thank you for that. We are so glad you catch our vibe. Yeah. You picked it up in the beginning of that. We loved it. Yeah. Thank you so much for leaving your review. Um, follow along with us on all of our social media to see the antiques we discussed in today's episode. We put them all up during the week and is a big post. You can find them all listed there. And that is at uh, Facebook, the Mothball Prophecies original and Instagram under the same name and Twitter at the Mothball Mavens. We'd love to hear about the collection that you have. You can send us an email telling us about it at the curios or not the curios, curios at the mothballprophecies.com or themothballprophecies at gmail.com. We cannot wait to hear about the stuff you collect and the weird shit you grew up with. And as always, we hope you find some cool shit. And don't forget to look under the tables. Bye. See ya.